how you face death and trauma and danger and any kind of threat says a lot about you, doesn't it? Would you agree? It says a lot about your character, who you are as a person. And it probably also says a lot about the, the intensity of that death or trauma or threat or danger that you face. And throughout history, we see a, a lot of responses that people had to death, whether it's on death row and they're about to be executed in the electric chair back in the day or the gas chamber or even on the gallows way back in the day. Some of those responses have been recorded for us, and I always find it interesting. The last words of Marquis de Favra, after reading his own death sentence and being hanged, his last words were this, I see that you have made three spelling mistakes. That's what he said, passionate about spelling and grammar all the way to the very end. That's a true story. Others faced their death with poise. They were collected. They seemed to be in control of their faculties, even maybe stoic. Socrates, you remember, Plato wrote about him. He was condemned to drink hemlock and be poisoned. And as he was dying, he was surrounded by his followers just tossing out one-liners, talking about life and philosophy and just very stoic, very reserved, seemed to almost be dispassionate. And then you read about others, especially martyrs that were maybe thrown into the Colosseum to be shredded to pieces by wild animals, or they were hacked to pieces by people who were persecuting them for their faith. They were hot-blooded and they were fearless. But I want to tell you this, nothing in history, nothing in literature, absolutely nothing, even nothing in the Bible before this, comes close to what Mark shows us the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and began to face abandonment by his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nothing comes close. I just want to read the very beginning of that to you again, just to make sure that it's, we set that in our minds and we set it before us while we come to communion today. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. One translation says, my soul is in agony, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. That's just the very beginning of this story that Mark records for us. Now, you know that Mark's gospel, I've told you this before, we're going through the gospel of Mark slowly but surely, getting toward the end. And you'll notice if you read the other gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Luke, and John, that Mark, by far, is the most filled with emotion and response. It's very intense. Mark is very careful to record people's emotion and the reactions to the things that are going on probably because he was writing to a Gentile and a Roman Gentile audience, and they were all about passion and intensity. And Mark wants them to, to see and feel and experience all the senses that the disciples were feeling that night. His depiction of the Garden of Gethsemane is the darkest by far. He alone records some of the things that we read there about Jesus confessing. Jesus is confessing, I'm agonizing. I am deeply troubled. I am in distress. Jesus was staggering here. It's just amazing how he faced death. Some people have even found this account 
offensive and distasteful. They think Martin was too bold. This, this hacks down their hero, Jesus, a little bit. They don't like to see this part of Jesus. That's not their hero. No hero is agonizing and sad and maybe even afraid and distressed. I've titled this message, Abandoned, but I could have very easily titled this, Jesus in the Hands of an Angry God. And I know some of you are like, ooh, I don't, that, already that bristles me. But friends, I, I really want to set the table for us this morning. I want to talk about some hard things that if we let them, will resonate in our heart and will be joyful things for us. This is an agonizing scene to read and to experience. And I think Mark and God and the Holy Spirit would have us to experience this the way that the Holy Spirit intended for us to. Jesus is our sin bearer. He is our divine substitute. He took the anger and the fury and the wrath of Almighty God. He drank it. It's called a cup in this passage. Jesus is talking about this cup, this bitter cup, this fearful cup. I don't want to drink it. Is there any other way, God? Take this cup away from me. The, the cup represented in the Bible, God's judgment on all human evil, divine justice. That's what it represented. And Jesus is just beginning to taste what bearing our sin would entail for him, what facing his father's wrath would entail for him. And he is staggering under that burden. He's staggering. This is a picture of Jesus we haven't seen before. He always is the master of the moment. He's calm. He's poised. He's in control. Whether it's demons assaulting him, <clears throat> the Pharisees and their hypocrisy trying to trick him and trap him, it's a raging storm. He's asleep on a pillow on the brow of the ship. None of those things faze him. Here he's staggering. Something's wrong with Jesus, it almost seems like, right? This should bother you. This should unsettle us. It's supposed to. Jesus absorbed all of this. He stood in our place, not just on the cross, but in the garden. Without Gethsemane, there is no Calvary. This is the very beginning of what it would mean for Jesus to be our substitute. He is beginning to taste what it would mean to enter hell for us instead of us, what that would mean. So we're going to celebrate communion this morning, and I just want to highlight a few truths from this passage to set before us for the table. What does Mark want us to take away from this scene? What does, what's God teaching us here? Because this is one of those messages I just want us to, you don't have to take any notes. If that's a distraction to you, you want to take it all in. I just want you to, to, to really focus. Mark, I think, wants us to, to take three things away from this, from this scene. We're going to behold these things together, okay? Number one, number one, the agony of Jesus. The agony of Jesus. What if I told you that at one point in his life and ministry, Jesus would be, would be overwhelmed? Just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus was overwhelmed. Does that make you think less of him? That's what it says. The words literally in Greek mean that. He's overwhelmed with just these waves of anguish and agony. What if I told you that? And that Jesus was deeply distressed and that Jesus was so agonizing over what he was about to endure that he was praying for an alternative to the cross. How's that hit you? Jesus was questioning his mission maybe. I can say it that way. I speak as a man. Don't label me a heretic. I'm just, I want to read this text to you. He's questioning like, Lord, is there any other way? Is there any other way? He's questioning his, his, his mission. 
He's looking for a way of escaping dying in our place. That's what he's doing right now. He's, he's searching. He's inquiring. He's exploring. Is there another way? I love these people. I want them to be forgiven of their sins. I want to redeem them. Is there another way? Rather than to drink this cup, is there any other way? And he's agonizing over it. Look at the language there in verse 33. Greatly distressed and troubled, and my soul is sorrowful, even to the point of death. What in the world is going on here? And again, it seems if you read history that brave Christian souls, let's just be honest here, because maybe you're like me, maybe you've thought of this before. You've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, maybe, which, not for the faint of heart, okay? People are getting disemboweled, and they're like quoting Psalms when it's happening. True history. That really happened. People a lot braver than me. I would have ran away and probably recanted. I would have, just being honest. But those brave Christian souls, they faced death seemingly with more poise, more courage, more faith, more calmness, and more resolve than Jesus did here. Now hear me out. Don't call me a heretic yet. I'm just telling you, does it seem that way? You read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Not New Smyrna, a different Smyrna. <laughs> he was an early Christian leader, and near the end of his life, he was taken before the magistrate. And he was told that he would be burned at the stake. You know what that means? That means you're lit on fire while you're alive and you're tied up and you can't go anywhere. He was told that. And that unless he rejected Christianity and recanted of his beliefs, that's the only way he could avoid the fiery execution. And here's what Polycarp said in response. He said, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little you do, not, you do not know the fire of the coming judgment, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Wow. The guy's in control of himself, isn't he? Seems very poised, calm, resolved, no agony there. I don't hear that he's deeply distressed and troubled. Do you? Did, did, I, did I read that wrong? Here's another one. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, both burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford. I went to the place where they were burned at the stake when I visited England. In 1855, they were tied side by side, and when the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer turned to his friend and he said, be a good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Where's their agony? I don't hear anything about distress or agony there, do you? Do they sound like they're overwhelmed to you? There's been people who've been crucified. The same means of execution, physically, humanly speaking, that Jesus underwent. And I could read some of the similar responses to how they faced their death and their execution. That's always bothered me. That's always bothered me as a Christian until I really began to understand I don't think it was dying that Jesus was afraid of. I don't think the thorns or the nails or the, the crucifixion, I don't think that overwhelmed him. I think there was something else that none of those other people faced. Latimer, Ridley, Polycarp of Smyrna. No, there's something really utterly unique here going on in this garden. And I think Mark and the Holy Spirit wants to draw our attention to it. Because this is what you and I, friends, were rescued from. This is what we were rescued from. And a lot of people don't like to talk about the wrath of God. And I understand a lot of the reasons why is because 
Some preachers and some Christians and some evangelists have, I think, used that almost in an abusive way. We need to hear about the wrath of God, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. It is. I think a lot of people use that and leave people there, though. They don't come all the way around to, but there's a way of escape for us, right? There's a way of escape. And I want to talk about those things today with you. They're heavy and they're deep things. And I've prayed for you. I've prayed for me. These are hard things to consider and hard things to look at. And I think a lot of people, because they're so offended by it, they never explore the depths of these truths. And so I think they miss out on a lot of the joys and exhilaration of what the gospel really means for us. Because if the Son came to set us free, I want to know what He set me free from. Do you? I want to know what in the world I'm enslaved to. Sure, my sin, the agonies of that, but what else? Because there's something else that if it was not for Jesus coming and dying in my place, I would have to face. And I want to celebrate, and and I want to have gratitude for that. But if I had this cheap, shallow, superficial, surfacey view of of God's wrath, that God's just, you know, he doesn't like sin, and he'd rather you not. If that's your view, man, you're missing out. So we got to go through the dark part in the woods uh, to get to the joy place, okay? And that's what I really want to talk about here with the agony. The cup, Ezekiel. The cup metaphor is used all through the Bible. And Ezekiel says, you will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation. Desolation. Isaiah says, the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. And Revelation 14 talks about in the future when God comes, not as the suffering servant, but as the judge, the righteous judge, and sets up his kingdom, that the great wine press of God's wrath will be poured out on the nations who, um, who are in unbelief. But this wrath, this cup that Jesus is facing, it makes him stagger. And part of the reason is because Jesus is about to become something that he never was before. He's about to become sin, the Bible says. That should bother us too, right? That's what the Bible says. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5. If that wasn't in the Bible, I couldn't utter it. I couldn't say it. Jesus became sin. Not a sinner. No, he was still a spotless lamb on the cross. He became a sin. He became a sin bearer. He became a curse for us instead of us. And as he faced that that bitter cup, it, it was repulsive to him. Let me ask you a question. I asked my wife this the other day. What's the most disgusting, vile, repulsive thing you could ever imagine touching or being exposed to? Don't answer out loud, please. Is it a 7-Eleven bathroom? I mean, I don't know. What is it? I've got little kids, and we would always go to Arkansas every Christmas, and they would always have to go potty between cities, and we would always have to go to some hole in the wall. You know, you look at it, and you just knew. Get the wet wipes, get the Clorox. And I would take my kids into the bathroom, and I would just be like, don't touch anything, hover. <laughs> um, let's get out as quick as we can. Think of the most repugnant, disgusting thing to you. I asked my wife that. I'm sorry, guys. We're getting a little gross today. It's okay. I said, what's the most disgusting thing to you, Sarah? She said, just cleaning a porta potty That's gross, isn't it? Okay. That's gross. Now imagine drinking the contents of a porta potty I'm sorry, guys. That's just a little taste, pun intended, okay? That's a little taste of what 
how Jesus may have felt. And, and, and I'm at a loss. I, I love illustrations. Illustrations help. They're like Velcro to, to keep truth into your mind. You can remember an illustration as a window through which you can view the clarity and the power of the truth. But I'm struggling with illustrations here because some people are like, yeah, yeah, been there, done that. Yeah, I've been, I, that, the 7-Eleven, the, the rest, been there, done that. No, there's, there's no been there, done that with this, though. None of us have ever, ever been here and done that. Only Jesus has been there and done that because there's always a way out for us. Always a way out for us. None of us have faced this. In fact, I had in my notes earlier, I was going to ask, how many of you have ever been utterly and completely abandoned? And I imagine that some people, I don't know, if you're really bold, you would raise your hand, and I was going to correct you and say it's not true. None of you in this room have ever been utterly and completely abandoned or deserted. You probably have felt that, but you have never been that because of God. He's always been there for you. Even when you didn't want him to be, he was there for you. All you had to do is call out to him. And even if you did and you didn't feel an answer, it was just something you felt. But here Jesus, he is. He's not just feeling utterly abandoned. He is utterly abandoned, utterly, completely, hopelessly abandoned by his father. And he is in agony over this because that's what that cup meant. When we think of wrath, we, we there's probably a lot of images that come into our head, and maybe we think of hell, and maybe we think of the, the horrific metaphors that the Holy Spirit chose to use to describe hell. Let's just be uncomfortable for a minute together, and let me remind you of some of them. Outer darkness, the Bible calls hell. Lake of fire. Gnashing of teeth. Weeping. Eternal torment. Unquenchable thirst. Jesus gave most of those descriptions. That's what the Bible calls hell. See, here's what Jesus expected in his humanity when he came into the garden and he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to the cross. Here's what he expected. He's beginning to, to think, man, I'm, I'm going to be the object of my father's wrath and I'm going to taste all of those things. But I believe in his humanity. When he came to the garden, he's in distress, he's in agony, and he's crying out to his father who had always been there for him, always. Jesus always had his father. He always, a thundering, booming voice would come down from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Man, do you know the power of affirmation and acceptance and love? Jesus always had that. He always had that from his father, always. I always do the things that please him. So Jesus, he's facing agony. He's getting unsettled in his humanity. He comes to the garden. He cries out to God, and what does he hear? Nothing. He hears this. For the first time in eternity, God doesn't answer him. Not a word. No hope, no encouragement, no comfort, none. Complete and utter abandonment. And that's the worst part of hell. That's the worst part. You are alone, utterly and completely alone. God is not there to comfort you. He's not there to love you. He's not there to help you. That's what Jesus tasted. That's that cup, and that was repulsive to him. His relationship, his union with his Father in a way that we can't fully understand. No theologian worth his weight in salt could even begin to try to explain this to you. Jesus, who's fully God, is, is, is in some way that we can't comprehend, cut off for a time his relationship with his Father. That's why on the cross, what did he cry? What did he cry out? 
these nails hurt really bad. No, no, that was nothing. That was nothing for Jesus. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is just beginning to experience what it would mean for him to be forsaken. So he came to the garden expecting heaven to open up to him in a booming voice, but instead hell opened up beneath him. That's what he faced in this garden. That's the agony. That's the agony of abandonment. There were other things. Sure, his friends would betray him. His closest followers will desert him. His enemies will slay him. His people will reject him. That hurt. That hurt. But he can deal with that because he's got his father. He's always had his father. But not here. That's taken away. And he staggers. He staggers. There's, there's that intimate Aramaic term, Abba, Father. And, and we've read translations of that that, that said our version, w- and putting it in, in shoe leather for us would be Daddy. kids and I have sons and I can I can only imagine I can only imagine what it would be like for a son to call out to his daddy who's always been there and to realize daddy's not here and oh who took daddy no daddy left on purpose daddy's gone you don't have daddy right now can you imagine that if you had kids, or even if you don't, just try. No, this is, this is by design. This is on purpose. Abba, Father, no answer. At, your, at, at the, the point in your life where you most need your daddy, and he's walked out on you. He's turned his back completely on you. He's not there. No, you're, you're all alone in this. And not only is he not there, he's about to turn around, and you're about to see a side of your, your father you've never seen, his anger, his fury, his judgment. These are heavy things to talk about, friends. They are, but we have to because Jesus faced these things so that you would never have to. Are you thankful for that? Does that create and produce gratitude in your heart? Does that cultivate joy? It's intended to. That's why this is in the Bible. It's there for a warning, sure. I mean, do you want to face this? Do you want to face this? Then by all means, keep rejecting Jesus and keep running from him. And one day, you will experience what Jesus just tasted here in the very beginning in the garden. That's staggering to me. That's mind-blowing to me. We went to uh, to, uh, the American Auto Salvage, is that what it's called, yesterday? The Patterson family, Cliff and Bree, they own that. And they were so gracious to let us go there um, and spend a day and see what it's like to... uh, Wait, I'm going the wrong way here. To see what it's like to see a car crushed. <laughs> Have you guys ever watched one of those balers? Is that what they, they call it, a baler? Uh, I grew up on a farm, so we bale hay. You take a bunch of sh- straw and, you know, all these different kinds of hay, and you smush it together and bale it so it's compact and it's heavy and there's strings on it. You pick it up, put a straw in your mouth, you know. <laughs> Uh, but you can bail a car too. And he showed us this. I, I took pictures. I should have, I didn't have time. I should have put them in the PowerPoint there. Um, but we're watching this big minivan that weighs probably, Cliff said, 2,600, 3,000 pounds. It's big. And he puts it in this bale. And, and this, this hydraulic oil machine begins to just really slowly and purposefully just crunch and squeeze and press this thing together. 
And there's crunch and there's glass, there's transmission fluid and, and coolant dripping out the bottom. It was something to hear and be, oh, these kids are like, <laughs> you've never seen a, seen a kid be more still and quiet than you did on that day, right? For the people that came, this car is getting crushed slowly and purposefully. Like as small as it's getting squeezed and compacted. And Christy and, and, uh, and I, Christy Roth was sitting there and we were talking about, man, it's amazing. There's so many metaphors here. And she's like, yeah, like Isaiah, you know, he was crushed for our iniquities. And I'm like, that's it. That's it. Look at this. Can you see, can you see this? Isaiah 53. Surely, and this, you know, this is an Old Testament prophecy talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That word in Hebrew means to be trampled and oppressed, just squashed into nothing like that car. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Oh, now that's... That's almost too much. It's like, okay, he got crushed. Man, that's, I guess God kind of let that happen. No, no, no. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was by design. This was on purpose. And Jesus knew that. He knew that. He had known that his entire life. But now he's tasting it for the first time and he's staggering. And we need to watch him stagger so that we can appreciate what our redemption really is. This Greek word, deeply distressed, it actually means astonished and alarmed. It's like Jesus was shocked at what this actually tasted like when he came to this moment. He knew about it. I mean, he'd been telling his disciples about it for three years. I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise from the grave. So now it's the very beginning of that betrayal and that arrest, but this was shocking to him and his humanity. It means astonished and alarmed. And Mark uses strong language. It actually conveys the idea of a man who is far away from home and has been left and abandoned. And he is longing for companionship and fellowship, but he can't find any. Jesus is about to be exposed to the one thing in life that he feared and dreaded. It wasn't the cruel death on the cross that would turn into a resurrection. It was the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God-forsaken. That's what this was. The Greek word troubled means to be overcome. With horror and with grief. Have you ever been overcome by grief? I know a lot of you have because I've watched you and been with, with you in some of those times. Have you ever been overcome with horror and shock and been a alarmed and astonished. And I know I've been a weeping mess this month. I'm sorry. Um, I don't guess I need to apologize to be weak, do I? <laughs> oh, yeah, you take it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry and you're going to take it. <laughs> but I was, I was thinking this morning of these words in Greek. There's, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose these words so purposefully to be shocked, to be alarmed, to be astonished, to be overwhelmed with horror. And I just think one Christmas years ago, we were visiting uh, my family in Arkansas, and my mom and dad are still alive, still healthy, in their 80s, doing great. But this was, I don't know, honey, 10 years ago or so, and I was taking a nap. I'm not a big napper. Part of it is I, I wrestle with filling my man cards, taking away if I have to take a nap. 
That's, your pastor's messed up, man. I'm, I'm just, I got a lot of issues. But on that day, I was so tired from the time zone change and driving, and I was just, honey, I'm going to go lay down. And I took a nap. Then I heard this loud crash. And I was in the other room, and I heard my wife saying, honey, honey, call 911. Not ever something you want to hear, is it? And so I'm half asleep, and I'm staggering out of the room. <sighs> My dad, on the floor, slumped over, and there's this big ceramic Christmas tree that my grandmother had made, and we had had it in the family and decorated it, and it had fallen over and shattered, and it was like on him and in the floor, and he was just laying there lifeless, and she said, I think your dad had a heart attack. Call 911. Now, I'm certified CPR. You should know that. I've been trained. Seriously, I had to take a course. I'm like, man, if anybody ever is going to have a heart attack or stop breathing, I'm the dude that needs to be there, right? <laughs> but seeing, seeing my dad laying there lifeless, I freaked. <laughs> you, can, you can ask my wife. Now, he was fine. He was on. I didn't know this. He was taking blood thinner medication, and he was hunched over working on something for his granddaughter, and he just, the circulation got cut off. He passed out, and he happened to be on a like a bar stool up high when it happened. And so when he passed out, he fell over and made a big thud. So my dad was fine, but I didn't know that. I thought my dad was dying. I thought my dad was dead. And so Mr. CPR, Mr. Train, at that moment, I was shocked and I was astonished and I was alarmed and I was overcome with horror and with grief. And I couldn't remember a cotton-picking thing about CPR. So you know what I did? I did what any professional would do. I jumped on top of my dad and I shook him. And I said, Dad, 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 wake up, wake up. You can ask my wife. I did, I did. And you know what? He woke up and I'm like, there you go. That's CPR for you, man. <laughs> and my dad woke up and he's like, what the heck happened? And I'm like, I don't know. I was wondering. And so, we, you know, later we had a good laugh and a cry over it. But my wife said, honey... <laughs> The laugh later, she said, I've never, I've never heard that sound come out of your mouth when you jumped down there and you went, Dad, my dad. And I'm like, stop, don't make fun of me. But I was overcome. That's what this means, to be deep, to be shocked. My dad, a beacon of strength, always there, always strong, always healthy, and he's lying unconscious, he's not there. And I don't know, maybe, again, illustrations fail us here, but for the first time in his life, Jesus had, did not have his father. He did not have his comforting presence, did not have his love, did not have his affirmation. All of that was taken from him, and that was hell. That was hell. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon a long time ago called Christ Agony, talking about this moment. And he said this, in the garden, Jesus had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was to be brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. That's a very vivid picture, isn't it? It's, be, it's one thing to be told, hey, you're going to have to suffer the wrath of God. It's another thing to be taken right up to the window and say, and here's what that's going to be like. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you taste it? Do you see that cup? Just, just look into the cup and just touch your finger in it and touch it to your tongue. 
That's what the, the wrath of God is going to That's amazing to me. That's amazing. Have you guys ever experienced something a little bit like that? I used to love jumping off cliffs uh, to the water blow, okay? I used to love that. And then I had an accident when I fell a long time ago, and it made me a little bit fearful of heights. And so after that, I would be at the lake, and I would walk over to the edge of the cliff, and I would think, I've jumped off a cliff. It's fun. It's exhilarating. It's thrilling. I know it's safe. There's no rocks or branches or anything down there. And I'm going to do this. And then I would get up to the cliff and I would walk over to the very edge. And I would peek over and say, no way. No way. I'm done. I, and there was an escape. See, I could leave. I could say, no, thank you. I took one of my kids to uh, Wet n' Wild, one of those theme parks. And man, we had to wait for like an hour and a half. And it was one of these, the stairs went, and there's people the whole way up. And so we're waiting, we're watching, we're hearing the the people that are loving this ride, and then it's one of my sons, I won't tell you which one, and we get to the very top, we've waited an hour and a half, but now we're up there, see? <laughs> now we're up there, and he's watching the people, there's this ride, have you ever been to it? There's, you stand in an enclosed tube, and you lean back, and there's this bottom that just drops. They don't tell you when, they don't tell you when it's going to drop, and it's safe, you know, it's been stamped and all that, and tested, and um, so... He's watching these people get in that tube and the door closed and, and their family and them screaming and he looks at me and he looks at them and he looks behind us at the line and, and he's like, Daddy, I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and I'm like, no, hang on, hang on here, cowboy, time out. We just waited an hour and a half in the heat for this. You're doing this. He's like, but, but, but I don't want to do it. I, I thought I wanted to do it and now that I'm up here and I'm seeing it, I don't want to do it. I'm scared. And so, you know what? We made a way down. <laughs> we... People were upset when we, we made our way down. We got to the mouth of the furnace. We looked in and said, no, thank you. Thank you, but no, thank you. Because, see, we, I don't have to jump off that cliff. I don't have to, to go down that slide with my son. But Jesus, Jesus, this is the only way that you and I could be redeemed. The only way. There's no other alternative. He prays for one. He looks for one. He explores. He begs the Father, please, take this cup away. I don't... I don't want to have to drink this if there's another way. But nevertheless, nevertheless, aren't you glad that's there? Aren't you so thankful that nevertheless is there? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. I will surrender to your ultimate will for my life because I love these people. They're my treasure. They're, they're my bride, and I'm going to redeem them back. You know, another thing that Mr. Patterson, Cliff, shared yesterday at the, at the salvage yard, he was showing us all these different types of metals, bronze, copper, aluminum, different alloys, different mixtures. And he was telling us there's a, there's a market for these. Every day it changes, kind of like the stock market. Bronze is going for 179 a pound. Copper's going, and he said, you know, all of these metals have value. And you, you know the ones that are uh, the most valued are the ones that the price is so high to buy them, right? And so do you want to know how valuable you are to God? Man, this is thrilling to think about this as we come to the table. Do you want to know how valuable you are to God? Then you're going to have to consider what it costs for him to buy you back from the slave market of sin and slavery. Do you know what it cost him? This is just a little win. We're just getting to the very beginning here of Passion Week and what Jesus was ultimately going to experience for you and me and instead of you and me. It cost him this. It was Jesus. You can escape. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this unless, of course, you want to spare them. Then you have to do it. And Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it for them. I'll surrender to you, Father.
This is going to be hard. Jesus had like this, there there were two different things competing. And and I think maybe maybe Sinclair Ferguson uh, said it better than anybody. He said, everything in Jesus longed to escape from this terrible experience seen in its own light. Yet everything in Jesus also longed to be obedient to the Father. You hear that? Everything in Jesus longed to escape this. But everything in Jesus longed to be obedient to his Father and to ransom you and I back. So Jesus was obedient to the Father. Praise God, because we're not. We're not at all. Are we? That's the second point. And I promise we're nearly finished. These are really quick points. View number two is our apathy. First, we see his agony, and then we see our apathy. What were the disciples doing when all this was happening? You know, Jesus, when he needed his friends the most, what were they doing? Oh, they were out to lunch, man. They were asleep. Their eyes were heavy. I think in Mark's language, he's telling us they couldn't even comprehend what was going on here. Mark uses that analogy, sleeping, darkness. They were half asleep. Jesus is facing utter abandonment by his father. And he just asked them, just please come for an hour and watch. And he's not asking them to watch for the Romans and the Jews. He's not concerned about that. He's saying, we're all facing a trial here, a temptation. Would you stay awake and be alert and watch? Because your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You need to be alert and awake. And none of them, none of them stayed awake. They all slept. It's interesting, Mark's gospel, let me geek out for a minute here, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all inspired, meaning the Holy Spirit inspired these records to be kept for us and recorded for us and preserved for us. Praise God we have them. Uh, Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples, so Mark had to have an informant, what they would call an informant. Somebody told Mark all of these things that happened so he could write them down. And no reputable scholar disagrees who it was that told Mark all these things. It was Peter. Peter was Mark's informant. He told him all these things, and it's really interesting to me that if you read Mark's gospel, there's certain things that Peter left out when he was telling the story of the life life and times of Jesus and his followers. Peter left out the part about him walking on water. I would have put that in. (laughs) Would you? I mean, honestly. And then... um, I walked on the water for 10, 10 or 12 feet. It was pretty rad, Mark. Make sure you, yeah, 12, 12 feet. Yeah, 12 feet. I would have left that in. He left it out. I would have put the part in where Jesus says, you are the rock, Peter. You're the rock. You're the leader. And whatever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven. And on this rock, this confession you've made, I will build my church in the gates of hell. That's not in Mark. Peter left that out. But you know what, you know what Peter did include? He included this one part here about Peter's failure. In fact, it's interesting. Look at verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to who? Peter. He said to Peter, Simon, which was his old name before he got his new name. He said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? That word you is in the singular tense. You, Peter, Peter, the rock. Peter, could you not stay awake one hour, Simon? I don't think Peter ever forgot that. When he's, I bet if we could find the original manuscript of Mark's copy that he wrote, I bet that John Mark's tears and Peter's tears were all over this manuscript as he remembered his failure. 
his weakness, his disobedience, his lack of resolve, his lack of control, apathy. And let's be honest, just please be honest. When you read this, and like my kids do, when you read the Old Testament, and I've read the story to them of in the garden, and you know, Eve ate the fruit, and she was deceived, and she offered it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Uh, I read that, and I'm like, what do you guys think you would, would have done if you would have been there? Oh, Daddy, we wouldn't have eaten it. <laughs> Come on, you would have eaten the whole tree, <laughs> right? You would have climbed up in that thing and fallen asleep and had apple, apple slobber all over you. No, I've thought that too. I wouldn't have done it. And when I read this account, because I'm a night owl, I like to stay up late. I've been like, man, those weaklings, come on. I've been like, Jesus, let's get some coffee. I'm with you, bro. I'm, I'm going to get an espresso and I'm, I'm here. I'm here for you. I'm here with you. You got nothing to worry about. No, we're talking about the apostle Peter. Raised people from the dead, cast out demons, was the leader of the church. We don't have anything on Peter. Peter is just a representative, kind of like Adam was, of all of us. Listen, we failed in the first garden with Adam, and in a way, we failed in the second garden with Peter. All of us, if we're honest, even at our best, we are weak and we are flawed and we are apathetic and we're asleep. We don't watch, we don't wait, we don't pray. Our eyes are half closed with apathy. And Mark wants us to see this. He wants us to see the agony of Jesus, and he wants us to see the apathy of the disciples so that we can see ourselves there. That's what he wants. One person wrote about their sleep during Jesus' struggle. They said this, watching and praying lies beyond their strength. The disciples, like others, require redemption and liberation. Hmm. We do. We require redemption and liberation. Now, we would have abandoned Jesus and forsaken Jesus just like they did, just like he said they would, but check this out. We would also have been recipients of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness just like they were, just like they were. That's the beauty of this. So, Mark wants us to see the agony of Jesus. He wants us to see the apathy of the disciples. And finally, he wants us to see this. And we've already hinted on it a little bit. He wants us to see the acceptance of Jesus and our acceptance too. Jesus accepted his mission. Aren't you thankful? He didn't escape. He didn't call down tens of legions of angels because he could have. Listen, I've told you before, it wasn't nails that kept him on that cross. It was his love for you and for me. It was his desire to obey his father and, and redeem his people. Jesus accepted his mission. And the second part of that is our acceptance. We are accepted. Do you know, after the second point, you're left just, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm flawed. I'm weak. I'm disobedient. I'm sinful. I don't obey God. I don't pray like I should. I don't do a lot of things like I should. But, but check this out, friends. Do you know this? God still wants you. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that good news? God still wants you. He still desires you. The Bible says you're still the apple of his eye. He still, the Bible says, rejoices over you with loud singing and shouting and exultation. He bought you. No, he's not about to lose you. <laughs> He paid a high price for you. He wants you. He did this for you. He did this in your place. He did this instead of you. This is what Sinclair Ferguson said. 
The fact that Jesus entered that darkness and experienced such grief is the source of all of our comfort. I don't know what comfort you have today or this week. There's things that are going on. There's conflicts. There's bad news. And something comforts you, comforts and, and encourages you. Sinclair Ferguson said this, what we see in this garden is the source of all of our comfort. It assures us that he understands our darkest hours. Man, isn't that amazing? Like, Jesus, the Bible says, is a great high priest who is sympathetic towards your weaknesses. You're like, yeah, it, it's, I get it. God knows what I'm going through. No, God has been through whatever it is you're going through and to a greater th- degree than you have that would make whatever agonizing trials we have pale in comparison. And Sinclair writes, but more, it means that he has drawn the sting from our darkest hour, for he has entered our God-forsaken condition so that we much share his God-accepted relationship to the Father. Isn't that good? Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of blessing. That's what this signifies here. We are getting blessed because he got cursed. He got crushed so that we could be put together again, right? That's what we celebrate at communion. Man, God loves us. God loves us. He has this unconditional, unrequited love for us. And this proves it right here, what he went through. There's a song that we've sang before, and, and uh, I don't know, some of you may not have a problem with it, but there was this big debate going on in, in Christendom. It's called Reckless Love. Have you heard it? Have you heard that song? And they're like, man, I, I, I don't know if we need to call God's love reckless. Well, most people, if... if if this was all put in human language and somebody did this for another human that was their enemy, people would call that outright reckless and maybe careless, right? But it was intentional and purposeful for God. What's that song say? What are the lyrics? Help me. There's no lie I wouldn't tear down and no wall I wouldn't kick down to come after you. That's what he did in the garden. He's kicking down walls and tearing down lies. Oh, God doesn't love me. God, I don't think God cares for me. Did you read what I read here? You don't think he cares for you? He did this for you. Romans 5 says, while we were weak, while we were sinful, while we were his enemies, he did this for us. He didn't wait on us to get better because that would have never happened because we're helpless. We're dead in our sins. He didn't wait for us to get nicer. He didn't wait for us to get holier. He died for us while we were his enemies. Man, that's good news, friends. I can celebrate communion with that truth. Can you? Well, let's do that. Let's do that right now. Let's, pr- let's just stop and pray, and I'll ask the parents while we pray and prepare. Some of the people that are going to serve us can, can, can gather yourselves, and I want to pray, and you parents can take this time to, to go and gather your children. Father in heaven, what glorious truths we've looked at today, but these are hard truths, Lord. It's a hard thing to talk about your wrath and your fury But it's a glorious thing to consider that that's something we'll never have to face if we're in Christ and we trust in Christ and we believe the gospel and we turn from our sins and we stop trusting in ourselves and instead we trust in in your marriage, your perfect life, your substitutionary death. Help us to cling to those things, Lord, today. Help us to remember because we forget. We have gospel amnesia. We forget how much you love us and that's why you gave us this ordinance so that we could handle and taste and touch and preach the gospel to ourselves by design. We have to do that. So help us to do that, to do it with joy, to do it with understanding. Help us to to set the Lord always before us. Since he is at our right hand, therefore we will never be shaken. 
and our hearts will be thrilled and we'll be at peace. Lord, I know just in a church this size even that there are people here today and they do not feel your love. They do not sense your care for them. They doubt your goodness. They doubt you have affection for them, that your death was for them. They doubt that, Lord. Eradicate that doubt today. May this be the day, Lord, that they leave with a divine assurance and certainty that you love them and that you died for them as they read the story that the garden ultimately led to the cross. Grant them that assurance today. Prepare our hearts, Lord, as we partake. May this not be a time where we're digging into our history and our past and trying to find some evidence that you love us, Lord. May the evidence be what we just read, (laughs) that you love us, that you died for us, Lord. May we examine that. May we examine whether we believe that or not. That your life is our life. Your righteousness is gifted to us. May we reach out and take it and celebrate that today. We pray these things as as you prepare our heart and as the children come in Jesus' name. Amen.